Hey guys, welcome back to pre-production. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you for listening once again. I'm sitting with a wonderful guest. His name is Franklin Rich. He is the writer, director, actor, and editor of The Artifice Girl, which I think is one of the best films of the year and one of the best films about artificial intelligence ever made. If you saw my review, you know that. And I think this is really just the first of many great things that you're going to be hearing that name involved with. So thank you so much, Franklin, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I couldn't be more excited to be here. If anyone listening hasn't seen it yet, it's hard to explain how difficult it is to get a film like Artifice Girl made, to convince somebody to give you money and time and effort and resources to make a film like that. It's really, really hard. It's so easy to watch a film and think, well, that was that that came together nicely. And then just sort of like forget about it. And you'd have no idea the, the struggles and hardships that the filmmaker went through to get that off the ground. So I just want to commend you again for making such a unique film. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, I think it, pe- people take it for granted. And, and even still, like because the film is a lot of dialogue and minimal locations, there is that kind of impression that it gives like this was made to be easy to make. And the, the truth is, is that no, you, you could never convince a, a studio. It, it's very difficult to, to get them to buy into a story like this, to, to, to buy into a film that is so grounded in that way. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it in, in a minute, but it sort of necessitated some creative approaches and ingenuity to the actual process of pre-production and production. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it because I think that it's really great to, to share how we did it with other people and encourage other people to, yeah, to go out and make their films without waiting for permission to do it. You really are the perfect guest for this show because I, I started it to to really get to the to the heart of not just like getting films made, but real indie filmmaking, just like scraping together everything you can to get something out there. So what was the first time you really realized films as something that could impact your life and maybe that you might want to make them one day? I remember always wanting to make films, like since as far as as far back as I could remember, I always knew I, I loved films. I loved watching films and I always loved the idea of making films. But when you're a kid, making films is seems impossible. It's like you want to be an astronaut when you're little. It's like you want to be a filmmaker. It's not like a, a real goal. It's not even a, a real job, you know? For me, it was always kind of just a fantasy until I remember being like seven or eight. And I know this sounds crazy, but I remember watching a VHS copy of Wallace and Gromit and the Wrong Trousers. Of all things, it was that film, watching that film on VHS. I remember just having this moment of, oh, well, I can do that. I mean, that's, you just get some plasticine and a camera, right? Like a little still camera. And take a photo, move the plasticine, take a photo, you know, move it again, take a photo, and then repeat. And then you string all of those photos together and it's a movie. And you can have this Lego figure or, you know, a an action figure or some or some clay, do whatever you want, and you can tell a story with that. And suddenly it just that for me was was huge. That you didn't need these expensive camera setups and, and all this equipment and all these people in order to to tell a story. For a long time through middle school and elementary school, I did a lot of stop motion animation. That was kind of how I learned the basics of of film and editing. And then in high school, I actually like made some friends and opened up a little socially. And so that's when I started making live action short films with with my friends through high school and college. My first gig at a production company here in, in Jacksonville, where I live, born and raised and still live to this day. And that's how it all kind of started for me was from a VHS copy of The Wrong Trousers. Wallace and Gromit, man. I remember watching um, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit 
I watched that review, Chris. I watched it. <laughs> I was like, such a great movie. He better he better say something kind about uh, boys. No, I, it's it's so cool, and I think it's it's actually kind of funny how first of all I love Ardman and I love the, just the concept of stop motion and animation in general of taking something inanimate and giving it life and personality and telling a story with it. Uh, I think of the Luxo lamp from Pixar and how this is just like a simple like thing on everybody's desk, animating it in a certain way. You empathize with it. Strangely, like has an interesting tie to Artifice Girl too, having empathy for something that may not actually be, you know, sentient and and alive, but through film and through this medium, you can sort of incite empathy and emotion through behavior. And I just, I just think that's magic. It's interesting because, like, I, I think a lot of people look at claymation or stop motion and think, like, oh, okay, maybe I could do that. There were a few short films I made with clay, like Play-Doh when I was a kid and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just little really rudimentary stuff. But, you know, it is true. It's like you don't have actors. You don't have a bunch of people that are at your disposal unless you're really blessed and you got a lot of friends who just love being in front of the camera. Usually you're trying to either beg people to be in your movie and the best you can do is maybe get them Taco Bell or something. If, <laughs> you know, maybe that that's like a stretch or a crushed like two liter of Coke. You know, it, it's like <laughs> there's your gift. Thanks for helping. But. Yeah, that's that's how we that's how we paid our cast on on Artifice Girl was just <laughs> crush two liters. But like with Plato and as you said, plasticine, like you know, you can have a full cast of characters teach you about camera setups and 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 patience. Yeah, that that was a big part of it. You have to be a little crazy, I think, to to really love stop motion because it's so you know the, the minutia of it. It's so precise and it's so meticulous. And that patience, learning that patience at an early age and developing those kinds of like habits of okay, you know. I messed this frame up. Do I go back and start over or do I turn this into something else? That kind of adaptability and that patience for the medium, I think, is is really important for a lot of young filmmakers to develop early on. You mentioned not really thinking about it as a job, that it felt sort of like this goal that was just unattainable, but you were doing it anyway. Did you face any opposition at home for these goals? Was, it, was there pressure to go into a field that was maybe more of a guaranteed paycheck? I wouldn't say that there was that there was pressure. I, I will be honest, like I, I feel very privileged and grateful that both of my parents never said, no, stop. However, there was always like a kind of like a bewilderment. Okay, well, eventually he'll grow out of it. Uh, I remember I made like a video that was like, and I think this was sort of a big, a big turning point was for, for a school project, you had to make like a family tree that was like people were putting on like poster board or whatever. And so what I did is interviewed all my family members and then animated these plasticine birds that would lip sync the, the interview audio on these limbs of our family tree, right? And, and did it as a stop motion short film. And so I had like featured little clips of each of my family members. It's my family. There were arguments even like in the interviews between some of the members. And so like those arguments were included. And it was just something fantastic about seeing these birds, these little plasticine clay animation birds, like arguing with each other about, about our family history. When people saw that, there was this like, oh, okay, this is something. There's, some, there's something here, right? And we don't fully understand it. We'll, we'll tolerate it until he grows out of it. And then joke's on them, you know, like still, yeah. <laughs> still waiting for that day to come when I'll, I'll just be like, all right, time to go to dentist school, you know? Right. Uh, 
I completely understand that. I mean, there were a lot of moments and if you like I have most of my short films saved like on tapes and DVDs and stuff. If you watch them like chronologically, you can start to see where we were sort of like figuring shit out and like, oh, is that that's where they started to like re- realize they could move the camera and like like creativity <laughs> started to like get injected into them and that's that's when my family was like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, suspicion. We need to we need to nip this in the bud before it gets out of hand. That's great. That's really great to hear that you had that kind of support. In today's day and age, it's so easy to learn things that you don't necessarily have to go to film school or schooling for specific things. I think we're around this the similar age. I'm guesstimating, but like did you feel that YouTube was like a, a way like a pathway to learn about film? Did you watch other people's tutorials. Nowadays, we're in this new generation where new filmmakers are starting to like come out of YouTube. Like the Talk To Me movie coming out has this YouTube filmmakers, Joe Penner, who made Arctic and Stowaway is a YouTuber. You know, like all this stuff is sort of like, it's a new generation. Absolutely. I love seeing that too, because that you're absolutely right. Because for a while, all you could do was like rent books from a library or watch the DVD behind the scenes special. When YouTube kind of started to pick up, Back in like the mid to late 2000s, I remember watching lots and lots of videos. Like, here's how we made this guy's head explode, or here's how we, you know, did this car crash without actually crashing a car. And so, yeah, there was a lot of information on how to sort of do this guerrilla backyard filmmaking. I think that was that was a channel like backyard uh, VFX or backyard effects or something. Early um, YouTube, man. It's early nice. YouTube. God, it's a throwback. I'm like having flashbacks now just thinking about it. Ah, uh, such a nice, wonderful, peaceful time. it was oh man so like into high school you mentioned that you were starting to get to a point where you were getting some some real human beings together to to act in front of the camera what was that like to start shooting with people and, and and learning how to direct humans and not just like figures and things like that you can know shots and editing and pacing you know you you can be a a whiz at all of that but if you don't have any kind of connection to the, the human element, then it's just going to be harder for your material to connect with audiences. So I remember, I, I think very early on realizing that the the best performances that I was getting from people were the people that I had spent the most time with. And not necessarily that like, oh, your best friends are going to be the best actors necessarily, but that the people that you can create an environment of trust and share a vision with, they're going to give you a performance that you don't have to be so micromanaging of because they trust you as a director and as a storyteller and you trust them as a performer. I think trust was sort of a big rule of thumb that I learned over several years. This was not like a, a, an immediate thing, just a lot of years of working with different people, with the same people. And even with Artifice Girl, I was lucky enough to know pretty much everyone involved in the cast and on the crew, aside from Lance Henriksen, because you're always going to have to work with people you've never worked with before, especially if you're if you're working on a, on a larger budget than you're used to, or even if you're just working on your first project, you're going to end up having to learn who you're working with and how to connect with them and how to build that sense of trust. You need to create an environment where people feel as if they're safe and, and, and then all of a sudden they can start doing these really terrifying things in front of the camera where they're crying and they're screaming and there's violence and, and they feel safe doing that, you know, and, and everyone feels like they can do that for you. It's funny. I was thinking about your film and when it comes to getting a film off the ground, I'm assuming you want to do all kinds of stories. I'm not going to put you in a box and say, Franklin Rich just wants to make really heady sci-fi movies for the rest of his life. 
Thank you, Chris. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it's like. Trust me. When it comes to you, you've written a script here that you might say is doable. You got a small cast. You've got a limited amount of locations. But that doesn't mean that you're going to find however much money you need to make it, especially if you're like in Jacksonville, Florida, just like hanging out with your buddies and looking for investors. I understand how difficult that is. So at what point did you jump from this high school you making short films to thinking, I must get a film made no matter what, and I will basically fight tooth and nail to make that happen? The truth is, to be perfectly honest, it was since high school that we had been wanting to, to make like a feature film. And there were a lot of attempts on the way. We made a lot of short films together and it took us a long time to even learn that like when you had a short, you should be submitting it to festivals, but you couldn't just submit it to all festivals. You have to be very precise about how you submit yeah. it. So we got our first film, our the, the first short film that we got into a festival, which wasn't our first short film. We had made several before that. That experience at that festival suddenly opened up our world to more than just Jacksonville, Florida. It was like, okay, there are people in the industry that actually are interested in what we're doing. It was like, okay, we've made some connections. Now maybe we can make a feature film with, you know, you start doing these calls with big studios that are like, we want it. We loved your short when we want to see what you want to do, what you want to do with a feature. So you get these scripts polished and you send them out. And then like, you know, we had sort of talked about, it's like, then nothing happens. And even when you get people that are like, yeah, let's do it. And then you just get ghosted. We said, well, let's make a film that we can do for no money. And we did. And then COVID happened. <laughs> and then it was like, all right, back to the drawing board. So it, it's going to be a long process. For, for us, it was like six or seven years of trying and, and failing. That's the reality of, of, of independent film, unfortunately, is that you have to put in a lot of work without any expectation of luck. But sometimes it won't happen no matter how hard you work without that luck. But if you get lucky and haven't put in that hard work, it won't matter. For us, it was COVID-19. It was the pandemic. And I had read an article or one or two articles a few years before about how technology was being used to hunt down criminals and predators and traffickers online. And I thought that was such a cool idea. What a fantastic way to use technology for good. But the idea kind of stayed dormant in my mind for a while until during the the spring of 2020, when everyone's locked inside, I had this moment of like, is there a way I could tell a story in a COVID safe environment, like either as a virtual stage reading or in like a small film set. And then I, I took that idea and said, could this work in like one location with three characters? And suddenly there was this epiphany moment of, okay, there might be a thematic connection between the budding adolescence of AI and childhood trauma. And for some reason, once that parallel was drawn, once that thematic tie was made, in my mind, it was like, okay, this is a story I have to tell. I had never really set out to make like a sci-fi film or a film about AI. At the time, I had no idea what AI was going to be, you know, like it was just sort of like, I don't know, it's, I liked, I liked her and I liked aliens. And you know, so I, I didn't really know what, what kind of trajectory we were on with AI, but I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't this be a fantastic way to explore these themes and ideas of childhood trauma and autonomy through this this technology and through it being used in this particular way. And that's how it all started. And there was, a, I think, a conversation between me and my director of photography that I've worked with for like 10 plus years where he said, let's do it. I remember saying, well, we can't because we don't have any money, but <laughs> we could shoot like this entire first 40 pages, the first act, we could shoot all of that with practically nothing. So why don't we do that? Like, let's just get get our core cast, 
we'll do some Zoom rehearsals and get like a crew of three people. I think it was like four, four or five people on, on our crew in total. And then our, our cast of, of like three or four get in a room, shoot the thing. We did in five days. I cut it together. Britt, our DP, colored it. I mixed it. And then I sent it off to the only person I knew really in the industry who was the guy who selected our short film at that at that festival <laughs> all those years ago, Peter Koplowski, who took it and said, I am going to make sure that you guys get what you need to do it. And he's the one who sent it to Paper Street Pictures and Aaron and Ashley, who we're very grateful to then have partnered with and make the rest of the film. So when people ask, like, how do you make an independent film? I, I don't think like my answer is necessarily the the right answer because my answer was, well, make half of the movie first. <laughs> uh, put the cart before the horse. The answer and, uh, the answer is any way you can. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what you did. I am so impressed by that. There's a in my review of your film, I said I know a little bit about the production. And that's what I knew was that you had shot that first act. That is fucking badass. <laughs> like I'm telling you right now, that is the most badass thing a filmmaker can do is be like, here's half my movie. Can you please finance the rest of it? Because it's that good. <laughs> it's hard to, you know, it 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 just barely manages to overshadow the desperation when you have half of a movie shot and ready to go. It's also, no, I mean, that is so cool because, you know, I mean, a lot of filmmakers are, they're like, should I make a pitch deck? How about like a like a like a PowerPoint presentation, or maybe I'll make like a, a I'll, maybe I'll previs a sequence, or I'll do a, a, yeah. a concept, you know, a, like a vo of a scene. You literally shot like you know, forty percent of your film, and you can say, hey, here's this. And the cool thing is, since it was the beginning of the movie, it's it's actually kind of genius because if people liked it who wanted to finance it. It's a to be continued situation where you don't have the rest of it. And then if they like it, they're on the hook and they want to know what happens next and they can trust you because they can see that this is, you know, when Aaron, I, I spoke to Aaron Kuntz about this and he told me that I was like, oh, so like what I saw was, was the first, like the first attempt at that. I was like, damn, dude, that's fucking good. Cause like, you know, in most, in most movies, they would have been like, all right, here's however much money and you can reshoot it again. But yours was already there. That, and that's, that's why. I'm so impressed. It was already there, you know? And that was you guys, just David Gerard, Cinda Nichols. You're brilliant actors, by the way. Oh, yeah. I looked up Cinda Nichols expecting her to have like 40 credits. And I was kind of blown away. And 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 I, I oddly want some context of one of her credits. Uh, Bubblegum Crisis is Dude, the, the anime. Right behind me is that anime. The, the, You're everything. Kidding. You yes. got it? Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Oh, my. That's <laughs> there she is. She's the, she's the lead in that one. We were literally just watching this the other night. We had her over to our apartment and we were talking about Bubblegum Crisis and I found it online and like put it on the TV and we were well, watching it. I've got and the official Blu-ray. That's incredible. <laughs> I genuinely am curious how that happened. I just was like, how did you end up being a voice in this anime I have and then nothing and then Artifice Girl? What? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Same with David and Tatum, who plays Cherry. Uh, He's amazing in the film, by the way. Right, She's yeah. terrific, terrific performance. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, I mean, for, for all of them. And Tatum, obviously, because you know, she was 11 at the time that we started shooting, like, we're going to be writing her coattails for the rest of her career. She's going to be doing, like, Marvel projects next year and whatnot. So I'm very grateful to have been, like, at the very beginning of of her, what will be a, a, a an insane career. 
But yeah, for for Cinda and David and and also Tatum, I had worked with them on previous projects. They are all local to Jacksonville, Florida, and are incredibly talented actors and performers. And I'd worked with them on several other projects, short films, and a couple theater projects. Tatum, in fact, auditioned for a play that I was directing several years ago. And she came in on audition for this little child role. She was like nine at the time. It wasn't like a big role. It was just like the kid that shows up and says something annoying. But she comes in auditions and like gives this monologue that makes everybody in the room cry. And we were like, okay, <laughs> you're good. You've got the role. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, if I, if I ever write a character that needs an actor that talented, good to know. I couldn't be more grateful for getting to work with them. And the pre-production process was, was super important with them as well, because we had to have extensive Zoom rehearsals. How much rehearsal time did you go for? Because obviously I would say with a film like this, beyond the obvious script, the right. most important things I would say is cast and like rehearsal time and really just getting getting into there and making sure that this just flows and feels right when you're saying the words and you know how you can cut it together. Absolutely. This was definitely one that we knew going in, like this is going to be all dialogue and that's a risk. That's a huge risk. So we said, okay, if we're putting all of our chips on dialogue, then let's make sure that that's right, that, that, that's, that it's great and that it's compelling. So as a writer, you focus on like pacing and structure and making sure that, that it is engaging just to, to read. From an actor's perspective, you got to make sure that you know the material well enough that it feels second nature. So that did require, yeah, I think we, we hopped on Zoom like two or three times a week, which was great because it, it was over the summer of, of 2020. So we were all starved for socialization. So it was a great opportunity to just like hop on to see a couple friends and like talk about what we were up to and run through the script and talk about the themes. And, and so we got to do that a lot. I don't know if I'll ever get lucky enough to get to have that kind of rehearsal process with future projects, but I hope so. I think it's a huge reason of why Artifice Girl has resonated with people is because yeah. of those characters and because everybody has that kind of chemistry that was built over time. So that was hugely important. And then I love, I love that your podcast is called pre-production because pre-production was everything for this project. I knew that I was going to be editing this film as well as directing and writing it. So when approaching how we were going to shoot it, how we were going to make it, I knew that we had to be insanely precise with coverage. We had to be efficient with our, our setups. Every angle had to be relevant to what was happening in the script. So Britt and I did a, an, an extensive amount of pre-production with detailed shot lists, storyboards, setup diagrams, all of that just to make sure that every cut was intentional and deliberate and had something meaningful to contribute to the, you know, the macro of the story. So I felt like I had edited the film before we even started shooting. I and can tell. And I have to say, like, it is an exceptionally well edited film. I mean, I felt the way I felt when I was watching like social network or something like just that that level of like extreme precision to the cuts and knowing I mean just like on the right words and and knowing when to cut to a wide stay in a wide do a do a zoom I mean it was just I meant what I said in my video man like this is just the first of many for you I appreciate that and thank you wearing so many hats so confidently but it's nice to hear that even into the shots and the editing that you were you were thinking about all that way before you ever got to actually editing we had to you know and I think independent film in a nutshell is approaching obstacles or, or maybe it's not even approaching, it's perceiving obstacles as opportunities for creativity, right? So we knew this was going to be one location 
three characters. Let's design a story that works with that. Let's design a scene that makes that compelling. We knew we only have five days to shoot. We knew that this was all going to be dialogue. So let's make sure that the pacing of the cinematography, that stays interesting and, and never feels stale. Well, how do we do that? Okay, well, let's be careful that we don't keep cutting back to the same shots. Let's keep the shots dynamic. Let's right. When, when is a profile necessary and, and when is a, you know, close-up necessary? When should the camera be over and when should it be under? You know, like all of these questions we had to ask. And again, we just kept making sure that before we, we got on set, we knew exactly how we were going to do it. And I don't know if that's something that I'll be allowed to do on future projects, but I, I hope that, I hope that it will be. I hope that I can fight for that. But I also do encourage other independent filmmakers out there, don't slack on pre-production. Don't show up on set thinking, I'll figure it out. There is a time and place for that. And, and you know, there are some films that necessitate a just sort of run and gun, we'll figure it out kind of mentality. But when you're working on such a small budget and you're working with such intense limitations, for me, I feel like the best thing you can do is plan. The irony too is that you have to be able to plan every single detail so precisely with no deviation whatsoever. And then also, as is filmmaking, be completely willing to throw all of it out the window on a dime because something goes wrong, you know, on set, which it did. So often on our set, things went wrong or, or unforeseen things happened. And again, you just have to be ready to approach those obstacles as opportunities. And that happens so often. The There's a, a, a sequence where a character punches a hole in the wall accidentally with a doorknob. That was not intentional. That happened on set was a total mistake, but we said, let's lean into it and make it a, like a key moment in the scene. There was a whole fiasco with a wheelchair that I won't even get into because it gets into spoiler territory, but <laughs> there's so many like things that we had to just sort of keep, it felt like doing the matrix dodge of cannonballs <laughs> instead of bullets. And you're just like, all right, dodging in a, another one. But that's filmmaking. And I and love you it. Can't like tell when you watch the movie, man, it's seamless. I mean, you know, if, if you if you if you went through any issues on set, it's you can't tell. But I, I completely understand that too. And it, it's cool because like one of the other things I noticed while watching it was the the blocking of the scenes was excellent in that the best films that are entirely dialogue focused, I mentioned some of my favorites in the video, but like 12 Angry Men, of course, but like in that movie they get up and they walk around and they take knives out of their pockets and they reenact the murder and the, and the camera follows them around the room. Your guys aren't just sitting at the table the whole time. Like they get up, they get angry. They walk around the room. They look at, they go over to there. Like the, the camera's moving with them. The, the characters are shifting in the room in a natural way. And like you said, that keeps the action dynamic. Absolutely. I love one location films too. I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but I absolutely love films like Rope. And 12 yeah. Angry Men, Dinner with Andre, obviously. Otherwise, if I you haven't seen Mass, I would strongly recommend Oh, I love Mass. Okay, yeah, cool. I'm so glad that you mentioned that one because people often don't don't talk about it. It was my favorite uh, film of that year. Oh, it's it's brilliant. I love Mass. I know it's a little bit different than than these films, but I also kind of rope it into the same kind of category because it's it's not technically in real time, but it's all in one day, is Kitty Green's The Assistant. That's another oh, yeah. Any dialogue, but you just feel so grounded and like just just you're in a moment you're in a moment yeah. I, I very much aspire to make a film that feels real time i think a lot of people tend to look down on movies like that as if they're easier to make or something like you don't have to follow someone over the course of many years or or, or months and then 
and you're just sort of like in a moment where someone's trying to survive a situation or get through a day or something along those lines. Fruitvale Station's a great one too. You know, there's yeah. there are so many obstacles that come with a movie like that because you have to make it interesting. You have to find a way for the movie to maintain interest over the space of a 90 minute, 100 minute runtime where someone's just this this 100 minutes of someone's life has got to be really fucking cool otherwise nobody's gonna <laughs> like this movie you know so like i yeah. i really am fascinated by that type of filmmaking and so obstacles are, are are happening on set and and you're you're as you said you're dodging them like neo but once you've once you've gotten to a point where you've got a film in the can you're editing the film so i know when i did shelby i didn't want to look at anything for like two days it was two days and then i was dying to see something I had to see something. I'm not the editor of Shelby. I, I did an assembly cut on my own because I just had to see something. We didn't have an editor hired immediately. We, we waited a few months actually to get an editor on board. So for those few months, I was dying to look at anything. and I did an assembly cut on my own. For you though, you're editing this film. So after you wrapped, were you ravenous to see it or did you need a breather? I had most of each act cut like <laughs> so it was so we shot we shot three acts and each act was about five days and each five days was were, were about six months apart oh so yeah so so when we when we shot act one i i would go home after we would wrap like so so we're talking like we we wrap around seven we leave set around eight i go home which was only like a 10 minute drive and immediately start editing what i had <laughs> And you how to, to see it. Up. You got to know what you got. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't help it. I love editing. I love because I feel like that's a huge part of where the story is really told. And and I have such a, an immense appreciation for editors as well as filmmakers that edit their own work. Mike Flanagan's a, a great example of that. I definitely feel like for me personally, that's where the real magic happens. And maybe you can connect that back to like the stop motion where like the editing is happening in real time. But for me, I feel like you really get to sort of craft the story through the cuts and and the pacing and and everything. You really can kind of see what you're doing, and there's an actual like sort of tangible payoff to all of the work that you've been doing. Um, there's a lot so, of yeah. truth to that saying that it's the third rewrite of your film. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And a lot of moments were for this film, even as much planning and meticulous pre-production that we did, there were still so many things that were discovered in editing. And sequences that we decided to 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 shift and alter slightly, and even a couple of pivotal moments that I think are some of the best in the film happened in editing. You have to be open to that as an editor. You can't be so closed in in your like this is what it is. You 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 have to be open to inspiration in all three stages, including editing. I did have a lot of time for that inspiration because I would typically have a cut of each act, like a day or two after we we wrapped each act. So by the time we wrapped act three, I had like a full cut, like a few days later, but there was still a lot of time. It gave me the freedom to, once you have, like you said, the assembly to just take the time, watch it and, and try and put yourself in an, in a completely objective perspective so that you can make better decisions about the pacing, the feel, the tone. I think that's important. Giving yourself It's so important and it's so hard. It's so hard to do that because you know you're so close to the material and and especially with you I mean you're in the film you're on camera but you clearly were able to accomplish that because you know it comes off as an incredibly assured debut I've already told you how much I like your movie you know I, you know I like it but I do have to say like 
I'm still in post on Shelby right now and going through the, the whole like watching your movie every goddamn day. <laughs> at some point, the movie begins to become like a song you've heard too much on the radio. Like, yeah, I want to ask, have you found any like ways to to kind of deal with that, to, to deal with sort of the monotony of the editing process? There is only one way that I have found, and that is to watch it with someone who's never seen it before. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you watch it differently when, when yes. like when you watch Shelby with someone else, it's different than when, when you yes. watch Shelby? Yeah, own. because you're looking at every time they 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 move or grunt or like I, I showed it to my wife who has a story credit on the film. Her and I've been working on the story of that movie since 2016. The first time she saw the rough cut, I was like painfully aware of every noise that came out of that woman. I mean, <laughs> everything could have been a bad thing. Like she made a noise at this one shot. I was like, what? What's what wrong with the shot? You know, it's, 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 there's something wrong with the shot. And she's like, yeah. oh, I was just clearing my throat. I was like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, you just, yeah, you have to resist the temptation to just stare at their face as they yeah. watch and they get a notepad. I, w- I will say that is huge. I-, I absolutely agree. Watching it with someone else definitely helps you kind of rewire your brain to think, okay, I'm going to watch it, imagining like how they're watching it. Watching it with an audience is also I think, really helpful, but at, at a certain point, it's it's hard to do that when you're so early in the process. I will give you like one other sort of trick that I've learned. And I feel like I stole this from someone. I don't think this is my original idea, but it's helped a lot. You can't do it too soon. But if you watch your, if you flip your film, just, just put a horizontal flip on the film. So it's like a mirrored image and watch your film that way. There's something about that, that really, yeah, give it a, give it a shot. I don't know like how, how like far into the editing process with Shelby you are. But give that a try and let me know. Very how close you- to lock. We lock, we lock really soon. But that's perfect. not a that bad is- idea. That's the perfect time to do it. Before before you lock, before like when you're writing that kind of like final few weeks, flip the film. Have have your editor like do the do the horizontal flip. Yeah, and I don't know if they're doing in Premiere or whatever, but yeah, have it like a mirror. Oh, I could just do it myself. We I have I have the the current file right now. I could just great, great. flip it. Just flip it and watch it, and I promise you, you like see everything. Like you're watching it for the first time. Like uh, all of the familiarity is still there. It's a weird psychological. That's crazy. But I think uh, you've just. I highly recommend it. You just hit on the most niche tip (laughs) ever. Are you a filmmaker who's tired of watching your film? Do you? Are you about to hit picture lock? Well, I've got the trick for you. Flip your movie. (laughs) It'll change everything. (laughs) Yeah, just make like an old like commercial where I've got like the straw hat and the cane. (laughs) That really is actually a real. I might actually try it. That's a, um, I'm sure there's going to be like a TikTok now. It's like where you've got the female AI voice that's like, I want to flip better edit your movie in, in one <laughs> quick way. Yeah. Watching a movie flipped is the best way. <laughs> that's so cool, man. So, okay. So you've edited your film now. At this point, you've already teamed up with Paper Street. You know, they've helped you finish the film. At what point did XYZ become involved with it? Yeah, so that was something that didn't happen until after our world premiere, and and once you start hitting the the festival circuit. Now I'm sure that there that again it's it's different for every film. Some films get distribution before they're even made, like you you strike a distribution deal, or sometimes it happens before your your festival run. For us, because we were we were you know <laughs> quote unquote, we, I mean, I, there's no beating around the bush. We were small potatoes. Like no one knew about us. We we didn't really have like we had Lance. Right. We were the AI movie with Lance. And even back in the summer of 2022, not a lot of people were talking about AI the way that they were talking about it the past two months. 
So, but we, but we had a, a really great splash at a world premiere and, and won that award at Fantasia. Fantasia. Yeah, Fantasia. Fantasia, which I, I cannot, oh my God, big shout out to Fantasia who, who made us feel so welcome and so loved and gave us a, a such a, such an incredible platform to, to show our film for the first time. And yeah, everybody over there, Mitch Davis, C. Robert Cargill was the first, like our first real like fan of the film. And he's the whole reason, like. That, that the film has been getting traction with all these other places That's and so Otto as well. Like we're, we're so grateful for everybody in that sort of stage of the process. But through that and through sort of the attention we got there, we got in touch with a couple of distributors and ultimately made it a, a deal with XYZ who are terrific. I mean, they're, they're like sort of the, you know, no one can call A24 independent film really anymore. <laughs> like A24 yeah. is now like, they're the big boys. They're 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 big now. But XYZ is now kind of the I think like one of the 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 best and and most most exciting distributors of of independent film right now. And their films are so diverse and interesting and and now they're they're putting out so many. It's it's really great to see Artifice Girl kind of alongside other great films like Blackberry and so many others. Something in the Dirt, the Benson and Moorhead film. Right. So yeah, that that was a great kind of step in in the process again that I'm completely new to. I I was very unfamiliar with distribution and this sort of side of things, but it's been it's been a really interesting learning experience through through all of this. Can you talk a little bit about this world premiere being in Fantasia and, and how that felt and, and watching it with the crowd and Q and A's and sort of standing there holding a microphone like you're important, you know? Because I mean, I know like. <laughs> Not to say that you aren't. I don't. I don't mean yeah, that as an yeah. insult. I mean, I, yeah. as as like a fellow creative, there there is there is nothing. It doesn't matter how many people tell you you're good at something. It's like it, you just never think that. You never begin. Oh well, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good at that. You know, it's it's you're always it's imposter syndrome. It's all kinds of things. And then suddenly always, you're standing always. on stage holding a microphone, and somebody says, "How did you do that?" And you're like, "Um, clay. I made clay videos when I was twelve. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's hard to articulate to, to people. And, and you're absolutely right. Even after I, I just got back from our national tour of like playing the film at all these theaters and and all of these like Q&As where I have to hold the mic and I still don't feel like I have like I, I haven't fully processed. I still don't feel like I understand how like we did it or if I am at all even deserving of of, of of these moments, that imposter syndrome never goes away. And I've kind of learned that from other people that I've I've met who who are like decades ahead of where we are, like in our in our careers in the industry doing what they're doing, they still feel it. So that yeah. that never goes away. It's just it's just how you manage it. But at Fantasia, getting to actually watch the film with an audience for the first time, which again I highly recommend if you're if you're able to do that in in post production. But doing that at the world premiere for the first time was it was incredible. And I, I forgot what we had made, you know, like you get so close to the film and, and because yeah, I had watched the the film through editing, through mixing, through all of this, I had gotten so close to it. You only see like pieces of bark. You don't even see the tree. You don't see the forest. You just see like splinters. And so finally getting to watch it with that kind of perspective and having people react verbally to moments, whether they're gasping or laughing. I forgot that there were like moments of comedy in this movie because you're just numb to it at that point. Yeah. But hearing people laugh and react and 
Then the other big thing was people wanting to engage afterwards, people wanting to talk about it, which I forgot, like was the whole point of wanting to tell the story in the first place, which was I wanted to incite conversations about these topics and these themes. So for people to come up and talk about it and ask questions and say, well, what do you think about this? And here's how I think, and here's how this, you know, how I connect this to my childhood. That was so incredibly special. And I, I hope again, like any independent filmmaker out there doing this, don't ever forget that what you're doing will matter, you know, whether it's to to one person or to millions, the fact that you're going to make a thing and when it gets out there, someone will connect with it. And it's like you've communicated something important, something that you couldn't have done through words. You did it through this incredible medium that involves so many other voices and artistic influences and people. That's the value. It's not about the reviews. It's not about the, I hope you're not doing it for money. <laughs> but if, if you just do it knowing that this is an opportunity to connect with people through a medium that I think is just the most fun thing in the world. Yeah. If anyone's listening who hasn't yet seen The Artifice Girl, you really need to check it out. You need to rent it on Amazon and iTunes and all the places where it's, where it's available and support independent film. Because I, I think that you're going to be making a lot of really good films in the future, man. And I'm I'm positive that right now you're having conversations that no one's privy to that are are really exciting conversations and and that are going to lead to great things. And and I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and for for bearing all this to to other people who who are in a similar position as as you and I were a few years ago of just really really just wanting to get something made and and not quite knowing how. And I think that this is just really great advice. I appreciate that. And thank you for what you're doing. Again, but between like your your reviews and, and this podcast, obviously like the 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 fact that you are are supporting independent film and you're using this incredible platform that you have to inspire young filmmakers to get out there and, and do this is I think that's that's truly remarkable. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to watch the film and that you enjoyed it enough to to talk about it. I, I can't thank you enough for that and just yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you, man. Thank this has been so special. That's really nice of you. Thank you so much, man. <laughs>